Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome for this series we are doing on good politics, Rabbi David Siegel. Uh, he is the lead organizer of the Religious Action Center for Reform Judaism uh, in their Houston uh, base. And so we're delighted to have you, David, with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, so we've been working together uh, for the past several months uh, through the Better uh, Texas Interfaith Coalition that we've put together that has been kind of sharing notes and collaborating on legislative strategy in Texas. And so we've been able to get to know one another as different faith groups that do advocacy work uh, have come together around the common good here in Texas. And I think uh, people would be interested to know more about uh, the Religion, Religious Action Center and uh, how it functions as a faith-based advocacy group. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, the, the Religious Action Center, sometimes known in our circles as the RAC, has mm -hmm. been around since the early 60s, really the, the middle of the civil rights movement of that era when the leaders of what was then called the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, that was the name that Reform Judaism had at the time as a denominational movement, they decided they needed to have, we needed to have our, our voice in Washington, basically advocating for these most important moral issues of the time, really in the tradition of the, of the biblical prophets, speaking truth to power, speaking out about justice, speaking out to protect the, the widow and the orphan and the stranger and th those kinds of princi ancient principles that we consider to be core to, to the Jewish faith. And so there was a center started in Washington understood to be our social action, social justice advocacy arm for our national movement to the seat of power in our country. And over the years that has expanded in different ways and really in the last decade or so, we have launched um, a number of state projects. We're now actually actively working in eight states, soon to be nine, where we organize not only for federal advocacy, which has been our historical approach, but also working toward legislative and other kinds of justice work and wins at the local and state level. And uh, certainly Texas has its unique cycle in that we can focus on that for half the year, every other year, and then it presents a challenge and opportunity in terms of how do we apply those values and that work when the legislature is not in, not in session. So as a Christian and a Baptist kind of Christian of a particular kind of Baptist also, I would say, uh, the aims and approach of RAC uh, are not foreign to me um, because of the worldview and orientation I have in, in my own faith. And we find much common cause, but in our own tradition of, uh, of being Christian, uh, that's not universally true. We, we, have, we have many Christians for whom um, the, the Christian life is mostly about uh, a, a, an individual piety of, of, of finding one's place uh, during time into eternity. Uh, but the idea of engaging in public life, in public advocacy, in political, the political sphere, that's sort of a, um, an optional thing. Uh, but uh, so we have to make this case. Uh, I think most people 
probably know that, you know, to say that you are a Jew doesn't necessarily answer the question of what that means, because right. Uh, right. there are, uh, just as there are many kinds of Baptists, there are many kinds of Jews, right? So, um, but in the Reformed Jewish tradition, uh, this is a, th this notion of, of being engaged in public life and advocacy is pretty much baked in, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's endemic to the nature of the Reformed Jewish outlook. Tikkun uh, alone, uh, the repair of the world is very central to the faith, right? Yes. And interesting, that, that term itself is, has an interesting history, which I won't go too deep into, but the idea of tikkun olam or litaken et haolam, to, to repair the world, that idea exists in our tradition to the most ancient of the rabbinic discussion and finds its way into Kabbalistic mystical tradition right. and then into Hasidic tradition where it, it means every mitzvah that you do, every, every commandment that you fulfill brings the shattered sparks of God's presence one step closer to reuniting. Mm -hmm. And, and we take that as reformed Jews, I, I think we take that into a kind of repair of society angle. Right. Um, and, you know, to the extent that we believe in, in messianism, which is a core belief of Judaism, right. That, that we do await a Messiah in reform Judaism, it tends to be in the form of, a messianic age will have an end of war and an end of disease and an end of injustice. We're less, I say we're less focused on a particular individual who's going to be a Messiah, but we do cast it in terms of always working toward that perfectibility of society. Um, even though we may also think we'll never quite get there, but we have to keep, keep going. So yeah, it's definitely in our core, in our DNA as reformed Jews. And I think it's also tied up with this, not just the, doctrine and, and belief, but also the story in particular of Jews in America. And just use my own family as an example, my grandparents on my mother's side immigrated mm -hmm. before World War II during that, you know, 1880, 1920 stretch of Eastern European sort of peak immigration. Mm -hmm. And they came as children with their families. And the way my, my dad's parent, my dad's grandparents actually had come the generation previously, but the way that the story was always told was that they found opportunity here. They found a haven here. They found a place that allowed them to be Jews the way they wanted to be Jews. And they, they in the next breath was always, and so we are responsible citizens and we, you know, we continue working. We do our part to contribute to society. And that took a lot of forms in terms of my own family story growing up. But I guess both personally, that, that idea of being engaged in public life, I sort of took for granted just because I saw my parents actively involved in politics or in like a nonprofit board or always members of the synagogue, which, which in a way was like part of our civic responsibility. Um, as much as we believed in, you know, being Jewish and going to a synagogue and participating in, in the community faith that way, it also was part of this fabric of, what does it mean to be a good citizen? You join a synagogue. Like this is what you do to support your community. And, and I come looking back on it now, I actually think that's really profound, even though, you know, we're moving away from affiliation rates, whether you're Baptist or Jewish or anything oh, else. Oh, um, yeah. But I really, I'm an old, I maybe I'm old fashioned in the sense that I, I think there's something about being attached to those institutions that right. really just helps shape us as, as people. And I think part of it also is 
another understanding that's deeply embedded in our tradition that we are all political beings, whether or not you want to bother with the mess of politics, I guess that's sort of up to you, but it's going to mess with you, whether you want to mess with it or not. Right. And, and I, I thought personal salvation piece is really interesting because we get, that's not unique to Christianity. Actually, we, you get that. I think in Jewish community, some of the pushback we get is, you know, keep politics out of the congregation. Right, right. We're just here to pray and we're here to study and tell me about Judaism. Don't tell me about politics. Well, I, I get it because you don't want to just like be read the New York Times editorial page when you walk into synagogue as the sermon. Right, right. On the other hand, I don't think we can completely shut out that outside world. So I think when I, why I think pulpit clergy is one of the toughest balancing acts is you have to yes. figure out a way to live in that space and push and pull people. And you've done that as well. Uh, you, you know, now you're working in, in this sphere uh, more specifically. But I think this congregational life that you're talking about, and I'm glad you're old-fashioned about that. I am too. Uh, but, but I think part of the reason it's so critical that we maintain that is that it's a, it's a kind of a buffer in uh, society, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a place where we can model and practice the politics that we then are engaging with our neighbors about. And if we can't do it at home, right, uh, where we have some differences, whether in our families or in our congregations, and every congregation is not homogeneous, God knows, right? And Judaism is becoming even more diverse racially and ethnically as well uh, these days. So if you can do it in a congregational life, then you, you have a moral authority and you've also been practicing that you can go into, into public life, right? Yes, I, yes. I think there was a time when church, synagogue, whatever was the institution provided that. And in some corners still does. It was a place where you encountered people who were different. And maybe to the outside observer, they, they all look the same. But that there are actually a lot of differences that are mediated by a faith community. Mm-hmm. One of the most fascinating studies I saw on that was um, actually in an argument with a very right-wing congregant I had my back in my polo in Colorado. But we had this really interesting dialogue about how when it comes to Muslim extremism, being a member of a mosque was actually a moderating influence. Mm-hmm. And the same is true, by the way, for Christians, uh, that if this is some of the analysis around the 2016 election in particular, had this, this um, category of the unchurched evangelical, people who'd identify as evangelical, or at least check the beliefs that would, would kind of align with that, but they aren't part of a faith community. And um, also learning from a, an old friend who is a devout conservative Christian um, and deeply committed to community, that there's something very dangerous about having the doctrine without the community mediation. Right. And right. I, I had never really thought about that before, but I think, I think it's a profound challenge. And I understand why people are disconnecting from institutions and don't like what houses of worship are offering. I get the rise of the nuns as they call them and all the stuff that Pew talks about, but there, there's, there's a trade-off, I guess I'll put well, it that, that for now. Unfortunately, some of the more recent data um, in Robbie Jones's book, White Too Long, uh, recently, um, his, um, his research shows that uh, in the evangelical world, uh, being part of an active, active part of a congregation has intensified the uh, partisanship and the um, the, the, the mm. So uh, that's uh, 
that's actually a fairly new, a fairly new trend and a dangerous one, I think, too. And uh, uh, one that we, we need to take up. But uh, I'll need to look into that. That says to me that the sort of toxic polarization yeah. is seeping into our our churches right. and synagogues. I, I'm afraid it's it's actually true. Well, let's let's talk for a few moments about when you engage at the Texas State Legislature, for instance, uh, and we can pick an issue or just speak in general. You know, I know, and I think many Christians know, when they go talk to a, a senator or uh, a representative there uh, about a particular issue, we may take uh, a Bible verse with us, or we may take, uh, you know, a kind of uh, res- sort of moral authority that comes from our biblical tradition and and use that to say, you know, we really want you to vote this way, or we believe this bill is good or bad on, on this basis. Uh, how does uh, Iraq do so? How do you engage? What, how do you equip people who you are mobilizing to participate in uh, this conversation uh, from your spiritual tradition? And do you find that to be similar or different uh, because you're coming at it from a, a different religious position than maybe the majority of Texans are? Yeah, that is a good question. We wrestle with that. Um, we do feel it's important to identify ourselves and root ourselves in Jewish tradition and reform Jewish values is the phrase we use a lot in terms of how we frame that. And our, you know, I think there's, there's a little couple sentences in our one page leave behind that talk about our traditions commitment in the, in the case of voting rights to the importance of voices being heard in community and leaders being held responsible. And so we're always connecting that. And we have a longer set of sources that a couple of our rabbis in our, in the state put together to help with study programs around how is this a Jewish issue? We did that two years ago with public education, mm-hmm. put together a, a, a source packet, and that's biblical sources, rabbinic texts, modern commentary, whole range of sources that point to not a specific policy position necessarily, but a kind of slant or an orientation or why we should care about this as Jews. One thing I will say that is sometimes happens is when we go to certain members of the legislature, federal or state, and as an identifiable, self-identifying Jewish group, they assume immediately that we want to talk about Israel ah, right, right. and Israel policy right. um, because they're used to Jewish groups doing that or that's just their assumption or whatever. And um, I, I won't name names at the moment, but um, that I've heard of constituents going in and actually getting rude slash off-putting reactions when they actually wanted to talk about expanding Medicaid or reproductive rights or uh, whatever other set of issues. And a member of Congress saying, but you're Jews, you should be talking about Israel policy and supporting Israel. It's like, well, we care about that too, but that's not what this meeting is about right. Um, right. at the moment. Yeah. So if you're Jews, you, you, you have to be singly focused. You can't you can't actually be present where you are and care about the common good here. It, it has to be about adopting that particular foreign policy connection. Fascinating. Yes, we do get that a lot. And I also think the other challenge is we're always, we want to assert that identity and, and bring that moral and ancient voice to the legislature and to the public square, but also know that in a, from a strategic point of view, that verse is not going to convince a legislator to vote a certain way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Um, although I will say, and I've learned from Pastor Charlie Johnson of, of Pastor for Texas Children, he spends a lot of time talking to legislators. And I think in some of the more informal chatting about, and he's talked to me about the conversations he had with um, Senator Kel Seliger, the, uh, the only Jewish member of the Texas Senate, they'll have some really interesting theological conversations back and forth. And I won't say that it has changed a vote necessarily, but I think it's broadened perspectives between the two of them. And, you know, if you're in it for a long game, those things matter. You're building relationships. He's definitely a master at that anyway, but um, I think there's an aspect of that. And also then, you know, how do we bridge the gap between our religious framing and kind of public good argument or commitment that I think also has to be, part of the conversation. Well, and for Christians, even when we engage in, in that way, you know, one of the things I find is using the Hebrew Bible is a, a, a real advantage for us because it is also part of our Bible, uh, but it doesn't, it, it's not exclusive to us. So th there's a kind of openness and invitation. Uh, but the truth is that the Hebrew Bible itself, the scripture itself, is only one part of your Bible, so to speak. I mean, you, it, the thing I think most people don't understand is just how fluid is or how broad is, you know, your sense of, um, of, of authority in terms of the, the scripture itself is one thing, and the, you know, the, the, the Talmud and the, the rabbinic tradition and the arguments about uh, the text and those sorts of things, all part of your resource of, of scripture, right? Right, yeah. right. You know, centuries, centuries upon centuries of layers of commentary. Right, so there's, there's a kind of, one of the things I, I love when I'm, I'm talking with uh, my partner, uh, Nancy Kasten, Rabbi Kasten, as you know, you know, is, is I always feel like I'm entering into a very old conversation, right? That, you know, this is, this is not something new where we're skipping over centuries, but we're actually just continuing a conversation. It's a, it's a fascinating, wonderful experience. So, yeah. I like so, that way. Yeah, I like that way of thinking about it. So David, uh, let's be specific about Texas for just a few moments that we have uh, remaining and say, you know, what have you, uh, what have you seen happening in the Texas state legislature this year uh, that maybe has uh, been uh, the biggest challenge to you, I think for many of us of uh, a similar worldview, it's been an incredibly challenging session. Uh, and any signs of hope, anything that you're going to take away and say, okay, there's something to work with here? We're beginning to ask those questions within our leadership group too. So as we, as we near the end of this, uh, at least the regular session, of course, there's special session blooming in the, on the horizon. We've been primarily focused on question of democracy and voting rights, and it has been very challenging in that regard, as the seems like enough of the leadership of the legislature is really fixated on, how should I put it, fixing a problem that doesn't really exist. And uh, there's a letter that we just signed on to last night of this election reform coalition that we're a part of that says something in one paragraph, like if they were really serious about election security and election integrity, there are really known good solid ways to shore it up. None of which are really being talked about this session. Right. Things like online voter registration, which all but I think nine states already have. Mm -hmm. 
and paper trails. There's some other auditing. There are, there are specific pieces and they, they seem, the ones who are the architects of this bill, which by the way, I think has some national lobbying money behind it anyway, and, that's, and language, frankly. Um, they're, they're intent on, I, I don't know, maybe the political analysis, they think this is important for their base and they're worried about primary challenges. I think maybe that's part of it. Um, so that's not encouraging. I think reasons for hope. I think actually the House Speaker and House leadership has, has shown some um, common sense, good governance, some of, some of which is letting some of the worst Senate bills die, mm -hmm. uh, letting them get pretty far, but then eventually die in various ways and wanting to keep to the business of the state. I, I think I, I do give Speaker Phelan credit for um, the, his priority to criminal justice bill and some of the healthcare, although the healthcare is minimally what they could be doing. It could be much more in terms of expanding coverage. Um, but we will see, I mean, at this point, the, the rubber's gonna hit the road on the voting rights piece in litigation once, once whatever bill gets passed, when it does get passed. Um, I would say another reason for hope is just what I hear from folks in the coalition I'm a part of who say this is this has been the most groups that have worked together like this in any session they've they've worked here. And I'm newer to the work, so at least in Texas. So hearing that perspective is helpful. Maybe there's a, a positive trend in that direction. So when you talk to people in your tradition and you try to mobilize them to um, engage in this process, uh, what sort of things do you say and uh, how do you how do you help people move from yes I'm concerned about this but I don't really know how my personal engagement really makes a difference uh, what are the ways you help bridge that gap between what I would call you know the pew and uh, the capital it's a great question. In some ways, that is the central question of, of organizing and community organizing. Mm -hmm. And some of it is doing the, the slow groundwork within our congregations of training them, training leaders, training them to find additional leaders, mm -hmm. to put a team together, people who care. And, and the key is, one of the keys is, we don't, the, the single issue activists are not necessarily the most helpful oh. in this work. What we really need are people who are committed to making a difference in some meaningful way okay. and are open and curious and learners. And, um, and we often say like the most diehard left-wing or right-wing activists are probably going to be a problem at this phase of the work mm -hmm. because they're going to want to just do it this way. Right. And we want to have a broader conversation about where can we make an impact right now and what's a long-term strategy for relationship building and impact. And that's hard also because it means saying no to certain things, at least right now. We went through a whole process where we ended up on voting rights as our primary campaign. And it meant we're, we're not putting all our attention into Medicaid expansion. We're not, we didn't put all our attention into reproductive rights or gun safety or any number of urgent and important things. And that culture shift is also really hard to teach that if we're gonna make a difference on one thing, we can't do everything at the same time. Right. And I think what people who step into this work and actually, you know, 
really, really taken on. There, there are people who see, oh, there's a real opportunity for action here. This is not just speaking truth to power, which can be its own kind of self-congratulatory act. Right, right. Um, but this is strategic. We have a plan. Are we going to win? We don't know, but at least we know where we're headed and we're, we're seeing movement. And sometimes and, small wins instead of big wins. Uh, yes. It's something that I think for people who get deeply involved and they want to support this whole bill, you know, and then it gets uh, eroded by, you know, compromises and it, it hardly looks like the bill that it started out to be. And then you say to yourself, well, uh, you know, do we, do we just give up and despair or do we, are we thankful that we got what we got? Right. So that's part of, I think the, the struggle of, of engagement is there's uh, you got to keep hope alive, I suppose, to quote a phrase, right? Yes, that's right. And we've working with our team to and our volunteers to redefine or just broaden what success looks like. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than just did the bill win or not, right? Or did you defeat it or not? It's did we build meaningful coalitions across lines of difference, faith, class, and race? Did we bring new leaders in and give them opportunities to exercise that leadership? Right. Are we strong in a stronger position for the next legislative session than we were? Right before, and I think in all of those areas we have definitive check checks in the box. Yeah. Um, the bills, some version of the bill SB seven is going to pass. I'm convinced at this point, but um, you know it did get watered down a little bit. So that we'll take we'll take a little a little check mark in that column. I mean we didn't do that alone, of course. Of course. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> right. Well, David, thank you for all the work that you do. And it's been fun to be partners with you in this um, uh, session. And um, I know that uh, you'll be um, going on to some other things soon as well. Uh, But we are so grateful for uh, all that you've done and the sense that uh, even across our our differences, we found common cause and that's terrific. So thanks, thanks for your work. Thank you. Thanks for this conversation and for everything you're doing to really highlight faith and faith activism at the at the forefront in Texas. So looking forward to ongoing partnership. Terrific. Thanks very much. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.